You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. The year was 1941. Germany, reeling from what they thought were too harsh of sanctions placed on them after World War I, was bitter and on the move. They were testing the waters of the international community to see what they could get away with. Hitler rose to power and fame based on a sense of national grievance and injustice, that the outside world was holding the German people down, and they needed to rise up and take their rightful place on the world stage. So Germany pushed slowly but surely into surrounding countries, taking over territory, performing a new form of warfare they called Blitzkrieg, which was war by speed, rushing upon the enemy such that they were overwhelmed even if they were the more powerful force. They used this strategy to invade France, thought to be a far superior military at the time, and then they began to set their expanding sights on Great Britain. As this next level of fighting ensued, we, as the American people, our nation, trained our collective eyes on what was taking place in Europe, on Hitler's aggressive advances, and what that might mean for our own involvement in what is seemingly to become the next great war. No one wanted to go to war again. No one wanted to send all of Mama's boys right back out into danger to lose countless more lives than we did in the first great war. Winston Churchill, however, uh, took power in Britain because they needed a wartime leader instead of a peacetime leader. And he secretly hoped that Germany would do something egregious enough to awake what he considered their sleeping giant of an ally in the American people. And so with our eyes pointed in that direction, however, something else was happening on the other side of the world. On the other side of the Pacific... There was a small but disproportionately powerful island nation called Japan dealing with their own ambitions and sanctions. And they too wanted to expand their empire, but many of our allies from World War I held power over the nations that they wanted to advance in. For their interests, we were a serious threat keeping them in check. And to some extent, we sensed this. And in an uncharacteristic move, we sent the majority of our naval fleet to the island of Hawaii. Just as a bit of a way, a bit of a warning or a way of saying, hey, Japan, we've got our eyes open, all right? We got our eyes open. And I think you know where this is going, but in response, Japan called our bluff. They said, you don't have your eyes on us. You don't, you aren't paying attention to us. No, you don't. We know where your eyes are actually trained, and it's not over here. While all of our newspapers and headlines were about the dangers creeping up on us over in Europe, they rolled a huge pair of dice. They knew that if they could somehow, some way, sneak up on and bomb the collection of our war machinery we had stationed at Pearl Harbor, they would be free to move about the Pacific Rim of Asia undeterred, their biggest threat having been neutralized. And what was actually a profound risk, they sent fleets of warships and bombers across the entire Pacific. Their only hope of a successful mission was to parade across an entire ocean and never be spotted. Never be seen by a commercial ship or a plane. Never have a fisherman be like, hey, here are all these Japanese warplanes and ships. That's kind of weird. Maybe I ought to radio, some, uh, radio somebody to raise some eyebrows. They crossed their fingers and essentially their toes and crossed the ocean night and day. And here's the thing. It 
worked. They arrived undetected at the outskirts of Pearl Harbor, and within the wee hours of a sleepy Sunday morning, much like the one we are here with today, on December 7th, an entire port housing the majority of our Pacific warships was wiped out, along with thousands of our own people. We had no idea what was coming, and we were grossly unprepared for such an unexpected sneak attack. In fact, our military commander was scheduled to play golf that very morning. You see, when you were in war, excuse me, when you were in war, very bad things happen when you get snuck up on. If you know the enemy in front of you, but not the enemy behind you, you are in store for some serious danger. What we didn't realize is that we truly were hemmed in on all sides, and that lack of awareness cost us deeply. And the Bible says the same is actually true for you. Welcome to church. (laughs) It's good to see you. If you're a guest, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a question for you this morning. What would you consider to be the biggest problem or the biggest obstacle in your life? If you prefer the language of enemy, what would you consider to be the biggest enemy or the biggest threat to your life? The thing that is causing the most amount of misery to you? The thing that is causing the most struggle or conflict within you? The thing that is causing you to fail to be the person that you know you should be, or if you're a believer in Jesus, the thing that is keeping you from following Jesus as fully and as faithfully as you know you should or ought to or would like to? What, for you, what is that thing? Perhaps you'd hear that question, you go, well, I think it's my job. I think, I think my job is the thing standing in my way. I work too much, I need a different job. If I had a different job, I would have more time, I would be able to do more, I would be the person that I want to be. Maybe for you it's, I need more money. If I just had more money, I definitely would not be the anxious person that I currently am. If my kids were quieter and had better listening skills, I can guarantee I would not be the angry person you see before you today, right? Like, I just wouldn't. Maybe I just need better opportunities or different education or less stress or better coping strategies or a better group leader or a different pastor or a different church or a different city or a different president. And the list, I imagine, could go on and on and on. And while these things certainly can be problems and often get the bulk of our attention, the Bible actually claims, the worldview of the Bible actually claims that these are not actually the greatest threat to your well-being. These things are not the greatest threat to your life. You see, we live in a context that almost solely focuses on the material. Every object is a purely physical object. Every event that occurs has a purely physical cause, and thus every problem is a purely physical problem. So, for example, are you stressed out? Take a vacation. Are you unhappy in your marriage? Get a new one. Or maybe go to counseling and get some strategies to help learn to relate better, but if that doesn't work, get a new one. Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Have some medicine. Are your kids annoying? Get some time away from them. These are the things that you actually need. And while the scriptures would affirm some of this, they would certainly affirm the physical realities to what opposes us. It also paints a much more holistic view of the things that plague us. The biblical worldview says there's more going on than meets the eye. The Bible opens up a whole, actually a whole other dimension of reality, a whole other lens by which to view good and evil and this tug of war that we sense deep within our own souls. 
The assertion of the scriptures is that everything we see and sense is wrong in our lives and even in society as a whole is the result of something called sin that is birthed and influenced by what followers of Jesus for millennia have called the three enemies of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, this exact language of three enemies isn't used in the New Testament, but these words and their ideas are actually seen throughout the scriptures, all right? Uh, And Christians adopted this language of three enemies just to put words to the sense that we all feel of this fight or this war of sorts all around us and even within us that goes beyond material circumstances and solutions. Now, one particular place that we actually see all three referenced in the scriptures is in Ephesians chapter 2, and that's going to be our text for this morning. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, we're going to look together at the first five verses of Ephesians 2. This is Paul, and he's writing to Ephesian Christians uh, in the Ephesian church. And this is what he says, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. So we'll stop right here. So here you can see them pretty clearly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now that's a lot of words, but obviously Paul is talking about a spiritual being of evil, one that Jesus calls the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And there's our third one, the flesh. These are our enemies. These are the things, according to the Bible, actually set against you. Not your kids, not your marriage, not your job or your income or your time or any of that circumstantial stuff. Though those things can certainly be affected and influenced by these enemies. But the true obstacles we face as followers of Jesus are the world, the flesh, and the devil. At the root lie these three things. And so for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to aim to look at each of these in a bit more detail, develop something of a theological understanding of the spiritual war we find ourselves in. But today, what I want to do for us is I just want to set the stage. I want to set the stage or set the perspective to introduce us to this reality that we all actually live in, whether we know it or not. And so let's talk about these enemies for the next few minutes. Let's look at them each in turn. First, let's talk about the world. So... Throughout the scriptures, the world is used in different ways at different times, okay? Sometimes it refers to the planet. Sometimes it refers to all of mankind. So like in John 3, 16, for example, where it says, For God so loved the world. It's talking about all of mankind. But, but here, the world is meant to refer to a system or a pattern or a way of being that is opposed to God. Another example of this would be like in Romans 12, 1, where it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or the mold or the shape of this world. World here means sinful ways of thinking, living, and believing that defy God, that become normalized to those who live in society. So they become the sinful ways of living that are just what's normal. It's just what we all do. I heard one person say recently, the world is any way that sin is made to seem normal and righteousness made to seem strange. So one example among thousands that I could give you is our culture's particular emphasis on the here and the now. A secular society like ours, by definition, says the most important thing is your personal happiness today. That is what matters most. Today is all you've got. You only live once, so live your best life now. 
The subtle, if often not so subtle message, is to make decisions that are going to maximize your today, even if those decisions are at the expense of your tomorrow. So go buy the car. Go upgrade the kitchen. Or if, you know what, why don't you just eat out a little bit more and enjoy your life? Put it on the credit card if you have to. It's fine. If you're unhappy at your job or in your marriage or in your neighborhood, then leave and leave today because your happiness is what matters most. And so practically practically speaking, what happens to those of us when we live in this mindset is that we often go into debt. We fail to plant deep roots anywhere or develop deep relationships and potentially even leave hurt in our wake. But that's okay, we tell ourselves, because our happiness is going to be the end result. Or we believe that our happiness is what's going to be delivered to us, and that's what ultimately matters. We have to seize the day. Now, biblically speaking, according to 1 Timothy 6.12, we are to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called when we made our good confession. Righteousness and joy aren't found in living for today, but rather in living for eternity. So, for example, we are, to store up tre- not, we're, we are not to store up treasures on earth, but rather store up treasure in heaven. But when we look around... Nobody does that, right? Nobody lives that way. Pursuing the maximum standard of living for ourselves here and now, that's actually what is normal. It's what almost everyone does, such that we don't even question it when we see it outside of us or even within ourselves. And that's what we mean by the world. That's what the world is. Patterns of living that defy God and become the assumed norm. It's just what we do. It's just the way we live. That's enemy number one. But the second he mentions is the devil, who works very closely with the world. It says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is one of the many ways that the New Testament authors talk about the devil, a spiritual being of evil working to steal, kill, and destroy the works of God. Now, I assume And maybe I'm wrong, but I assume that this is the one that many of us probably get a little bit hung up on, right? Like maybe you're thinking something along the lines of, really, Bailey? Really? The devil? That's that's where you're going? The world I can get behind. Like I might want to argue with you about how negative you talk about it, but I can at least see what you're saying, that there is sort of a, a pattern or a way of living that we all kind of assimilate into. But you expect me, do you really expect me to hold the position that there is some sort of supernatural creature of evil lurking behind the scenes like a shadowy puppet master running the show? That's what you expect me to believe? Yeah, pretty much. That's where I'm at. Listen, I'm not going to try to excuse or explain away the things the Bible says to make it more palatable for our 21st century sensibilities, all right? I'm not, I'm not going to do that. The worldview of the Bible, and even more specifically, the worldview of Jesus, is that we live in a world that is inhabited by more than what we see. There are real spiritual realities and real spiritual beings that are a part of this whole thing. And I understand that as good, modern, Western people, we are highly, highly suspicious of that claim. I get that. And I promise we're going to talk about this in more detail in the coming weeks. But what I would invite you to do this morning is I just want you, I just want to invite you to suspend your disbelief for a moment and try to throw out your preconceived notions about who you think the devil is and what you think the devil does. Perhaps some red dude with horns and a pitchfork trying to get you to do bad stuff or whatever your image may be. And actually consider how the scriptures actually talk about it. 
how the scriptures actually describe who he is and what he does and see if that doesn't actually make more sense for your lived experience. So in the Bible, the devil is often referred to in a lot of different ways, but he is most often called the deceiver or the accuser or the father of lies. The Bible, the Bible presents him not strictly in terms of someone who is trying to trip you up or get in your way by, say, making your toaster not work so you lash out in anger because you're late to work or by getting that attractive young woman to cross your path so that you succumb to lust or whatever it may be. But rather, his chief strategy is deception and lies. His chief mode of operation is to get you to think, believe, and see things that are not true such that you turn away from God and instead turn to going about life your own way. We see this all the way back in Genesis 3 and in the garden. The serpent, which is a stand-in image for this being called the devil, his chief strategy was, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Maybe, maybe you got the information wrong. Maybe that's not what he really meant. Maybe he's not telling you the whole truth. It's not actually bad for you. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, you're going to become like him. He is actually the one holding out on you. It's lies, bent truth, deception. In essence, his strategy for, say, lust or unfaithfulness, as an example, is to get you to believe, you know what, it's, it's okay to look. It's just natural. It's completely natural. There's no harm in looking. How can you be held accountable for what just comes naturally to you? This is not a big deal. To get you to believe these things so that he doesn't have to cause anyone attractive to walk by you one day. He just knows that when someone does, you will fall in line because you're already believing the lie. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2 connects the world and the devil so closely together. Because what's the easiest lie to get you to believe? The same one that everyone else does. It's the easiest thing to get you to believe. Why bother popping up on your shoulder with horns and a pitchfork to tempt you to sin when he could lead you to sin just as easily without ever really needing to show up, without ever really needing to make it seem like he's there? The devil and the world work hand in hand to spread deceit and lies to our lived existence. So there's the world and the devil, but then there's enemy number three, our flesh. Enemy number three, our flesh. And this one is, equally, uh, is, is as equally important as the other two. In Ephesians 2, he writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Who is the whom here that Paul is referencing? It's not a trick question. Who's the whom? No. The whom is the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Among whom, him, who we all live. The three are tied together. The devil who rules over the world is the whom we are all we, we are living in, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Once again, the Bible uses the word flesh to mean many different things at different times, but most often it's used to describe the most fundamental, basic drives of humanity. As one pastor, uh, pastor I heard recently put it, the flesh is our base animalistic desire or drive for self-gratification. That thing that internally cries, I want I must have, I can't live without that, that drives, drives you, or if you prefer the word cravings, that essentially run the show for our lives. 
Again, much more to come on this in the coming weeks, but I love the way the African church father, St. Augustine, talks about this. He talked about the flesh. When he talked about the flesh, he talked about it in terms of disordered loves or disordered desires. In essence, the flesh is how we either love the wrong things or love the right things in the wrong order. So, for example, it's not bad to love your career. It's not a bad thing. It's not bad to love your career. But when you love it more than your son or your daughter, that's a disordered love. And it will wreak havoc on your soul and the souls of the people you parent. It's not bad to love your teenager or your children. But when you love him or her more than God, that's actually a disordered love. And it will wreak havoc on you and other people in your community. To continue the example from earlier, one of the reasons that accumulation of debt has become so normalized is, it, is, it, is because it plays to our disordered desires for comfort and approval and control and power. It's not just that the pattern of the world is to chase money and wealth and stuff at all costs. It is that, but it's also, I want to. I want these things. I want to because I want the comfort that I believe having money and stuff is going to provide for me. I want to because I want the status of what it would mean to drive that car or live in that neighborhood or have that boat. I want the power that comes with having a lot of money to be able to do what I want when I want it. I want that. So yes, I chase the things that the world chases. And this is why understanding the flesh is important. Because if you only focus on the other two enemies, we might leave with the impression that we're actually the victims in this whole thing. We might actually leave with the impression that we're the victims, that sin isn't really my fault, that I didn't really have much to do with it. The deck was stacked against me. It was the big bad world and the big bad devil who were conspiring against you to put you in this precarious position. But that is not the deal. That is not what Ephesians 2 says. What Ephesians 2 is telling us here is that we join forces with the world and the devil to our own demise. That we, in fact, are just as culpable for our sins and our own struggles and the things that are wreaking havoc in our lives as these external forces. One pastor summarized the way they work in relationship with each other like this. He said, the chief strategy is deceitful ideas, the devil, that play to disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. And I just find that to be so true. So for example, the devil offers, offers us this deceptive idea that uninhibited sexual expression is the key to happiness. That if you really want to be happy, then you just need to be able to sleep with who you want when you want, want to. Which then comes alive in my flesh. This disordered desire within me that does in fact crave to sleep with who I want when I want to. And I see people around me doing the same thing, even saying, even going as far to say that, say that my other ideas about sexuality would be restraining and oppressive, and they seem happy. And I want what they have, so I take it. So I live this way. I disregard God's intention for my sex life and choose to do my own thing. This is how it works all the time. And what this text ought to get us to see here is that our analysis of what's wrong in the world is often far, far too simplistic. It's not simply external circumstances and material things that are our problem, but our chief problem lies much, much deeper underneath the surface. So why am I so messed up? Why do I blow up at my kids? Why do I lie to my boss? Why do I look at porn? Why do I struggle with addiction? Because there is evil within me. 
because I am dishonest with myself and I'm clinging to things that I shouldn't be clinging to, believing that this is where life is gonna be found. Because there's evil outside of me that my parents or someone maybe sinned against me or someone taught me to think and believe in ways that aren't true. Or I'm surrounded by patterns of uh, simple thinking and behavior that make these decisions just seem so natural in my life. And then there's also evil above me and beyond me. A hierarchy of supernatural evil that just aggravates, coordinates, and manages the evil within you and outside of you. Why is the world so messed up? Because it's full of people exactly like you and me caught up in the exact same spiritual conflict as we are. This is why all of the solutions that we hear thrown out on how to fix our society, especially during times like this when we're right in the middle of an election cycle, They never seem to fully work. It's why all of our solutions never seem to fully solve the problem, no matter which side of the aisle proposes them, because the solutions are always material. They're always surface level, and our problem goes much, much deeper than that. The Bible invites us to see that our problems, both on the grand corporate level and our personal level, are far more complex than just the material. And until we realize this, we're actually setting ourselves up to be defeated. Essentially, we are focusing on what's happening in Europe without seeing the danger in our own backyard. St. John of the Cross put it like this. He said, all the evils to which the world is subject proceed, excuse me, all the evils to which the soul is subject proceed from the three enemies already mentioned, the world, the devil, and the flesh. If we can hide ourselves from these, we shall have no combats to fight. If we do not conquer the three, we shall never perfectly conquer one. And if we conquer one, we shall also conquer the others in the same proportion. He's saying these three enemies are really the only three enemies really out there. And they are always at work in tandem with each other and must be addressed in tandem with each other. But according to Ephesians 2, we are hemmed in on every side. We are encircled by these three. The word, the word Paul uses here is we are dead. And we would do well to see the gravity of that language. What Paul is saying is that without intervention from something outside of you, these three enemies have actually won. Without the intervention of something or someone else, these three things will have, have had their way with you. And I don't know the last dead person you were around and what they did, but one thing I can tell you they didn't do was anything to make themselves not dead, right? You see, sin is not just an action. Sin is actually a condition. What I mean is none of us learned how to sin, right? Not a single one of us learned how to sin. Nobody had to sit us down and teach you what it meant to lust or covet. You just figured that out all on your own, right? You figured it out all on your own that sin is not just the actions that we do, but it's a condition and a condition that each and every one of us have. We tend to be comfortable with the idea that other people are sinners, right? Like we tend to be very comfortable that other people are sinners, but a tid more uncomfortable with with the reality that we ourselves might actually be one too. Other people, sure, but me, ah, I just make mistakes. I just have some bad choices in my past. I just have some trauma that I'm working through, and I'm really the victim. We don't think we need to be saved. We think we just need to be helped that we just need some ways to decrease the stress and manage our lives a little bit better, that we just need some healthier coping strategies or a stronger group of friends. We think that what we really need is to simply realize the strength that we already possess inside of us. And when we actualize those things, well, then we'll be able to defeat our enemies and our life will go the way we want it to go. 
But our problem is not that we are good people who occasionally lose our way and do bad things. The problem is, is we are people who have bought into the lies of the devil to suit our own sinful passions like the rest of the world around us. And thus we are a people who deserve whatever that sin is actually due. Like the text says, we were children of wrath, or rather heirs of divine justice, if you find that language more palatable. I don't, for what it's worth. I don't know where we got the idea that God being a God of love means that he is indifferent towards evil, but we did not get that idea from the Bible. You aren't indifferent towards the evil that harms someone, someone or something you love, and neither is God. He is not indifferent to the corrupting work of sin on the creation he loves, including its corrupting effects on the very perpetrators of it that are made in his image. And the reality of it is, is he is going to give that what it deserves. He is going to give the world, the flesh, and the devil the things they deserve. And so it is real simple. The first thing we need when it comes to tackling our enemies, the very first thing we need is for someone or something to take us and make us their enemy instead of their ally. Someone or something to take us from death to life. In short, what we need in this battle is we need to be saved from it. We need saving. Picking up in verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God. Anglican priest John Stott calls this the greatest two syllables in the English language, and I just love that. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In a showing of divine mercy, God chose to rescue us from team death to bring us to team life. Notice this is all in the past tense. He's not, saying, he's not saying God will make us alive, but God has made us alive. It's in the past tense because Paul is referring to what Jesus has already done for us. He's talking about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. He's not talking about some gradual religious process of becoming alive, where you slowly become a good, God-fearing person. He's talking about something that Jesus did and accomplished for you once and for all at a definitive moment in history. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He died the death that we deserved. He was treated like he was a follower of the devil, a son of disobedience, a child of wrath in our place and rose to new life so that all who would trust in him would have life themselves from their deadness. He rose to new life to secure life for us. And listen, I know that Christians get made of that word sometimes, saved. I get it. It sounds a little backwoodsy, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know a better word to describe what Jesus has done for us. I just don't. He destroys the work of the devil, rescuing us from lies to truth. He overcomes the world and its hopeless patterns of trying to find life someplace out, outside of Christ. And he sets us free from the all-consuming slavery of our disordered loves. Listen, I'm sorry, but there is only one word I know for that, and that word is salvation. It's what that is. And it says we are saved by grace, which means we didn't earn any part of it. This is not something that we earn from God by showing how good we are. We didn't have anything really to do with it. We were dead. And like we said before, dead people don't do things. They just don't. 
They don't decide things. Dead, dead people don't say one day, you know what, I'm tired of being dead. I think I'm going get to up, get up and live for a few more years. No, you were dead. You didn't decide you wanted to know God. You didn't decide that you wanted to live spiritually. You can't decide that. You were dead, but God made you alive. By his grace, by his mercy, he made you alive. And so what I need you to hear this morning is that when it comes to your biggest problem, your biggest obstacle, your biggest enemy, you don't need to be improved. You don't need to be edited or upgraded or rebooted or enhanced. You need to be saved. That is what you need. You need to be forgiven. You need to be restored. You need to be redeemed. You need to be resurrected. You don't need to adjust your life. You need new life. And friends, this is what Christ has come to offer us. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has overcome the works of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he has brought us life when there was death, such that now these three enemies and the present and eternal havoc they wreak on your soul do not have to be the final story for you, or for that matter, for the rest of the world either. And so the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that the devil and his forces are like a retreating army. For us, the war has already been won. And while the final battle hasn't yet commenced, the enemy has been defeated. And that is incredibly good news for the positions we find ourselves in. But what we often fail to realize is that there is still a battle. There is still a battle. There will come a day when, as the scriptures say, Jesus finally puts every enemy under his feet. But that day is coming. It's not yet here. And thus, these three enemies still remain, and there is still a fight to be had. What I have witnessed time and time again is that people get sidelined and walk away from Jesus because they thought that the battle was over. Thinking, well, I'm a believer now, and I'm in a life group, so I'm good. Or I was brought up in the church, so everything is fine. Or I asked Jesus into my heart, so I'm good to go. And the enemies of the soul just walk right back through the front door and make themselves at home. They were looking at Europe and neglected Japan. And I don't say to be this an alarmist, but it's true. I have seen countless people walk away from faith in Jesus because they believed that the battle was over. They prayed a prayer, got baptized, were even excited and pumped to be a part of the church for a while, but put up no defenses against the enemies of the soul. People who came to Jesus but never let him change the way they thought about money and wealth, such that they kept chasing these things like the rest of the world chases them, such that they took jobs where they worked 80 to 90 hours a week, leaving no time for church and family, and eventually shipwrecked both in their lives leading them to the point where they blamed God for their problems when it was really just the result of their own decisions. People who became believers told others about Jesus and served with a lot of zeal, but continued to buy the lie our culture believes about marriage and sexual fulfillment. That these, not God, are the keys to happiness. And when it appeared that those were going to go unfulfilled in their life if they were to follow God's way, well, they opted to pursue it by their own. And the truth is, is that none of this was an all-at-once thing for anybody. It's an excuse here, an unmet expectation there, a disgruntled spirit that doesn't seek rest, uh, reconciliation that slowly chips away at our soul. And we need to wake up and see that often we are losing the fight. People don't wake up one day and decide to walk away from Jesus. It's an apathy or an unrealization that you have three enemies that want nothing more than to destroy you. Almost 100 years ago, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote these words. This is a long quote, but I think it's really good, so I want to read it to you. 
He said, let me talk to you about true Christianity. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or even twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and strugglings, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, of this they appear to know nothing at all. And then he wraps everything up, whittles it down and says, do you find in your heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for the mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It's a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. A real Christian can be known as much by his inward warfare as by his inward peace. And this is the reality that I want to leave you with this morning is that following Jesus is a life of fighting the three enemies of the soul. The war has been won, but the battle is not over yet. And we do not need to fall asleep. I'll say it more simply. Where there is life, where there is real life, there is always fight. If it helps, think about a newborn baby when, when she arrives. When a baby is born alive, there is fight. There is violence in childbirth. If you haven't experienced that yet, oh boy. There's screaming. There's screaming and crying, and that's just the dad. And a little bit of kicking, right? And a little bit of kicking because she's here and she's fighting for breath. She's struggling. She's fighting for air. If the child arrives without some fight then something has gone wrong, right? Because where there is life, there is fight, and the same is true with your spiritual life. The person who has been brought from death to life doesn't just coast, doesn't just float about. She fights because where there is spiritual life, there is fight. And if you say you are a Christian and there is no warring, if there's not an exertion for the things of God, it is either because you've fallen asleep or you're not actually a Christian. And I can't tell you which of the two you are. You're going to have to discern that for yourselves. But one of the two is true. Where there is life, there is fight. And our expectation has to be that in the, if we are followers of Jesus, we are going to spend our lives combating these enemies. We're going to combat the lies of the devil. We are going to say no to our flesh. And we are going to aim to live in a way that is different from the way the rest of the world lives. That we're not going to buy into the pattern of our neighbors just because it's what everyone else does. And what seems normal to us. We're going to come to God's word and say, God, no, I'm going to be about what you're about. 
I want to be in on the things that you are in. And I know that inside of me something is going to want to wage war against that God, but I am going to fight because I believe you are where true life is found. And so for this season of Lent, man, this is what we are trying to do. We want to open our eyes to these realities, to get out of our small views of our lives, to see what is actually going on around us and fight. This is why we're engaging in the practices that we are, like fasting and meditative scripture reading and the exam and prayer, to help us see that the problems in our lives are deeper than just stress and time management. That there are bigger realities at play. There is an enemy using deceitful ideas, playing to our disordered desires, and a world normalizing them. And we need Jesus and his spirit to deliver us. We need him. And if we can understand the strategy, if we can understand who our enemies are, it can actually change the game for how we fight. And we can learn to fight well. The great Chinese military leader Sun Tzu, I guess that's how you say his name, in his famous piece, The Art of War, he says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at these enemies in a bit more detail and how to fight them as disciples of Jesus. But this is our aim for Lent, to know our enemy well such that we can fight. To know our enemy well such that we can know our Savior even more. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you that the reality of the world that we live in is not a reality that you have hidden from us. That you have made it very clear, God, that we are wrapped up in more than meets the eye. I know that can be difficult to see and uh, to believe here in the West where we tend to just think in terms of uh, what's in front of us, what we can see and feel and taste and touch and hear and all, all that kind of stuff, God. There's actually more at play. God, I just pray that you would open our eyes to these realities, that you would help us to see the spiritual conflict we are actually wrapped up in. The bigger picture, God, I pray that you would help us to see that Jesus is the one we need, that this is not a warfare that has happened to us, but one that we have engaged in, one that we have fought against you in even. But God, because of your love and your mercy to us, you have rescued us from death to bring us to life. And God, I pray that you would lead us in that, that you would further drive us to dependency upon your grace and your mercy, that you would further drive us to your spirit for strength and help, and that you would create in us new life that you would help us to become a people who do fight, who want to put to death the works of the devil and the world and the flesh to pursue life that is found in you. And we just need your help to get there. And I pray that you would create that in us during Lent, that through our fasting and our reading and our praying and our uh, experiences with community, that you would awaken these things in us. And we just need you to do it. And we just ask that you would. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your empowering spirit. You're a good God to us. Thank you for loving us when we did not love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.